The following teaching is brought to you by Crosspoint Church. For sermon notes and other resources, visit go to crosspoint.com. Hey, uh, middle school today, this is, uh, you guys are staying in with us today. We call this unofficial like a worship together weekend once in a while to get you guys in here with your families staying here. So we're going to do this in a way that's hopefully interesting to you. Back in the day when I had hair, I, well, I did middle school, taught middle, did middle school for like 10, 12 years, middle school teacher, working with middle school kids. I hope this will be interesting and good for you today as well. If you've missed church and missed our series the last few uh, months, we're in this series called Jesus is King. Scattered around the tables outside, you'll find little Jesus is King stickers. They look something like this up on the screen. Well, it's actually not a black tattoo. It's awesome. It's a little sticker there. Uh, there there's, Jesus is king. There's a, uh, there it is. Uh, pick one of those up. Have that out there. It's your screen to remind you about this. But uh, if you've missed church, haven't been here for a while, uh, I'm going to catch you up on this whole Jesus is king, what this is all about. Because we're wrapping up our Jesus is, king, Jesus is king series next weekend. Jesus shows up on the scene and he's He's born, he, then he gets baptized, and he hears a voice from him and says, You are my son in whom I'm well pleased. And, and Jesus is announced as the king. He goes out to the desert to do battle with Satan and demons to show that he is the king. He comes on in his first message. The first thing he says when he goes public with his message, he doesn't say there's a new religion, there's a new spirituality. And what he says is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know what that means? He's the king. Jesus is the king. That's what he's announcing. And then he validates that claim. He validates that claim by doing all kinds of miracles, by showing his authority over sickness, showing his authority over nature. He talks to nature, and nature listens to him. He shows his authority over this supernatural, unseen, demonic world, and demons, and these crazy, bizarre, outlandish stuff. He has power and authority even over the unseen, demonic, spiritual world. He talked about his kingdom too. He taught about it, that he told stories about, about what it was like. These parable stories that are, that are these simple stories that have profound implications and meanings for all of us. And if you're part of his deal, you're going, okay, so when is this kingdom going to actually take place? And Jesus says, okay, guys, it's been about two and a half, almost three years. We're going to Jerusalem. And they're going, okay, is this it? Is it going to happen now? Is, 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 is the kingdom, this whole thing, kingdom, is, is it now? Is it going to happen now? And sure enough, he gets a little baby donkey. Now, for you and I to get a little baby donkey and ride into a town wouldn't mean anything. Back then, when kings came into town, they would come on the back of stallions, steeds, these big, massive, they would have a whole entourage behind him. But several hundred years before Jesus was alive on planet Earth, a prophet, a guy named Zechariah, wrote down, hey, when the Messiah, when the king comes... He's going to come to you on the back of a baby donkey. Not a regular donkey, a baby donkey. You're going to know he's the king. Jesus says, I'm the king. I'm showing up. The next day he goes to the temple, he goes, it's time for the king to come and clean house. Because the temple is like the epicenter. It's the hub of all the social, political, religious identity of who Israel is. And he says, you know what? Game over. I'm the king. I'm coming to clean house here. He flips over tables. He goes crazy in the temple. Everybody goes, dang, if you're part of that going, oh man, this is it. It's game on. And a couple other things happen during that week. And then 
He tells the guys, hey, go get the upper room ready because it's Passover week. For you non-Jewish people, that means nothing to you. Passover is like the Super Bowl and Fourth of July and Mother's Day all combined. Chris, it's, 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 a big, it's the big massive thing that's in the Jewish culture. And they do a big feast where they gather together and tell their story. And it's weird. You're part of that entourage. If you're sitting there in that upper room with Jesus while they're doing this going, he keeps changing it. Which is weird for us in America and in the West we have religious, spiritual services. We change things up all the time. People go, okay, whatever. We're just keeping it loose, keeping it different. Back then, you didn't change that. This has been 1,700 years of every night we gathered on this night and we said the same exact thing. And Jesus stopped in the middle and said, hey, there, no, no, I'm the king, new covenant. And this new covenant's going to be in my blood and in my body. And you remember, go, he's talked about this, like there's going to be death and resurrection, which didn't make sense if you're the king, because he's going to reign and rule, and we're going to reign and rule with him. And you're kind of confused, and you think, what does this mean? He tells Judas, he goes, hey, Judas, what you're about to do, do quickly. And Judas leaves, and you're going, where's Judas going? Nobody has any idea what's going on there. And they go out to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And you watch this king that you're following throw himself down on the ground, and he's scratching at the ground and clawing at the ground, screaming out, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this, just freaking out, losing his mind, literally, and all of a sudden, you hear a stirring in the background, and Judas shows up, you go, oh, Judas is here, and Judas walks up and gives Jesus the customary greeting of a kiss, that's what they did back in that culture, today we would do handshakes and high fives, but back then, just the customary thing that they did back then, and all of a sudden, Roman soldiers are there, and they're arresting Jesus. And you all take off going, what's happening here? But you think, okay, maybe something, he's going to do some big dramatic miracle. We've seen him do some crazy, amazing miracles. Maybe he's going to get to the, like the, 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 where they do the trial, and something crazy is going to happen here, where he's going to do that transfiguration thing where he, whoa, the glow, the glow and the power of God coming through him and out of him. It's an illegal trial. If you study... Uh, history at all. What happens with Jesus when he's put on trial is completely done illegal. Every part of it is illegal. You, you weren't allowed to try anybody. Yet they, they put him on trial at the priest's house. You couldn't do that. You couldn't do that at night for a capital crime. They, he's railroaded through the justice system. They know that they have no authority as Jewish people occupied by the Roman Empire to condemn somebody to death. So they have to take him to the guy named Pontius Pilate. He's the Roman procurator. He's the governor over the whole region of Israel. And they say, we found fault in this man. This man claims to be a king. They, they, their, their concern was not with treason against Rome. They hated Rome. But they know the only way they're going to get Jesus condemned to die is to accuse him of treason against Rome. And Pilate examines him and says, oh, this is ridiculous. This is some little squabble. You guys have, go away. And they, oh, no, no, if you, if, you, if you don't do take care of this, you are no friend of Caesar. And that's code word for if this gets back to Rome, you, pal, are going to be in a lot of trouble. So in order to pacify them, to think, okay, all they want is a little blood. I'm just going to beat him up a little bit. He has the Roman guards take him out and flog him. If you saw the movie The Passion of the Christ, the flogging scene in there is fairly accurate in terms of how they beat people up with flogging back then. It was not just whipping them with leather. It was, it was clay and, and metal and broken pottery in, uh, wrapped in the ends of uh, strands of leather and really the, the, 
the flesh ripped off of a person's body. The soldiers beat him in the face. They blindfolded him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, King, who hit you? Then he had a crown of thorns, big, thick thorns like this and on his head. And you guys know if you ever get cut on the head, man, blood comes everywhere. So he's just blood everywhere. They put a purple robe on him in mockery. And Pilate brings him back out to the crowd that's gathered in the courtyard and says, look at your king. Thinking, okay, they're going to be all king. Oh, they're going to be like, oh, this is great. Okay, we got our blood. He put him in his place. And they scream back at him, we have no king but Caesar, which is just a joke for the Jewish people. That would be like a Democrat saying, we love Donald Trump. Or Trump people saying, we, we have no president but Biden. I'm just telling you, more radical. They, they, they hated Rome and hated Caesar. But they know they've got to do this. And Pilate goes, well, I find no fault in him. What what should I do with your king? And rumbling up through the crowd, all of a sudden they start to hear, crucify, 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 crucify. He says, he recognizes that this is starting to get out of hand. He knows if this gets out of hand, you, you get in trouble as the governor, as the person in charge of the region that you're ruling, if there is riots and unrest. So he brings out a bowl of water and says, I'm innocent of all this. Take him away and crucify him. Crucifixion uh, is a scandalous, dirty, nasty thing that happened to people condemned of capital crimes. Um, It was done in public places, not in private, like when we have executions today. They're they're done in private. Sometimes very few people are allowed in there. Back then when they crucified people, they would do this today if Rome was still ruling. They would do it on the 15 freeway at the off-ramps there at, at, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon when you're stopped there. They, they, they want this to be as public as possible, and they did it in such a way. In our Constitution, we have laws and rules that say against cruel uh, and unusual punishment. There, there's the thing, you can't have cruel and unusual punishment. The whole point of crucifixion was to be cruel and unusual, was to be as inhumane as possible. Jesus would have been led out through the streets carrying the patibulum, the cross thing wrapped around his shoulders, carrying it through the streets. He fell a few times. They get to the crucifixion site. They take the, throw that down on the ground. They strip Jesus naked. All of the Renaissance paintings that have Jesus clothed in a toga is just for common decency because nobody wants to see that. But, but they, this was designed to be embarrassing and humiliating as possible. Uh, they took nails and they drove them through the hand, through the wrist area right here, and stretched them out on that cross. They raised that piece up and put it on the scaffolding that was there, and they would take his feet and nail one foot over the other. They've also discovered in recent archaeology and, and, and digging up things that oftentimes they would uh, not put him one foot over the other, but they would have to put him on both sides of the cross and put the spike, put the nail through the Achilles tendon to the ankle to make it as torturous as possible. When a person got on the cross, they did not die of blood loss. Sometimes they died of shock, of the pain of the flogging and the crucifixion, but the most common way a person died on the cross was asphyxiation. Some of you know this story. Know that what happens here is you're hanging on the cross with your knees. They would do this with your knees slightly bent like this. And you would hang there. After a while, you can't breathe. 
And so in order to breathe, you have to relieve the pressure on your lungs. And so with excruciating, agonizing pain, almost involuntarily, your body would spasm up, pulling on the spikes here and on the, on the spikes in your feet. <sighs> and this would go on for days. Crucifixion was not designed to be something got over quickly. If we were to see a real reenactment of a crucifixion today, it would be NC 17. If I gave you a full described description, a full description of it today, some of you would, would get nauseous and need to leave. It was despicable. It was evil. There was the smell as, as prisoners up there, urine and feces and bodily fluid. It's just, it was awful. Rome does this to say, hey, anybody who messes with us, this is what we do to your king. Over the cross, it was written, the king of the Jews. That is not Rome recognizing that, oh, Jesus must be a king of some kind. That's complete mockery. They go, you think you're a king? This is what we do to your king. Pay attention. That's what goes on on the cross. And as Jesus is hanging there, it's for about six hours. He dies quickly because it says, my life isn't taken from me. I offer it up and lay it down. You'll see in, in some of the accounts of this that they break the prisoner's legs. you know why they did that? Because if your legs are broken, guess what you can't do anymore? You can't push up, and so you would just eventually uh, die if they wanted to hasten somebody's death. After six hours, they pull the bodies off of the cross and just lay them there on the ground. Most of the time, the bodies are taken out to the, to the garbage dump for the birds and the dogs to eat. Jesus actually, um, somebody heard about it and put him, Joseph of Arimathea, buries him in his burial cave, in his tomb. But as you're standing there that day, if you're watching this, you've heard Jesus say on the cross, it's over, it's done. And you're thinking, you're right, it's over and done. It's finished, it's... And what I want to tell you today that in God's kingdom, with Jesus as king, things are usually not as they seem. Things are usually not as they show up uh, on uh, appearances. Uh, We're going to take a look today at seven last words of Jesus. As he's hanging on the cross, he said seven things. Uh, These all come out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But what I did today for you, the verses will be here on the screen is we harmonized them together. We, we took, because otherwise we'd go look at Matthew's version, have to go to Mark, and then go over to John, back to Matthew, going back and forth. Because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't have all seven of these all at once in their story. They're good reporters. They put down what stands out to them, what, what, what contains the message of what they're trying to say. So Jesus says these things in the cross, and all these four different writers uh, capture those. We're going to take a look at those. As we do this today, you're going to see up on the screen here, a guy's in the back to take a look at this. There's on the inside of that program today, there's a picture of this that'll come up on, um, on your screen, on, on the inside of your note sheet. It's the seven last, no, the, let's get the picture at the end of the slide there, guys. At the end of the presentation, can we get that? There it is. It's the seven statements of Jesus. My hope and prayer today is, look at me for a second. This is not going to be intensely practical and pragmatic today. What I hope to do today is trouble your spirit, have the spirit of God trouble your spirit. To look at these things that Jesus says and be surprised by them, to be troubled by them, to be even inspired by these seven things that Jesus says 
on the cross. I also want to encourage you, on the bottom of your note sheet, there is a book, the best book I've ever read on, the, on what the cross is all about, a book by a guy named John Stott. Uh, fantastic book that kind of looks at the historical parts of what crucifixion was all about and then the implications and ramifications for us as followers of Jesus. I'd encourage you to get that book, download it uh, on your digital device, get it, and take a look at that. Jesus, as we come to you now today to look, to look below the surface, to, to see Maybe what we've missed over the years. God, inspire our hearts, trouble our hearts, convict us, encourage us. Whatever you need to do today, Spirit, by what I say, by what the, what the guys will do up here with the music and all that together, do something in our hearts today. Amen. Here's the story. Jesus has been flogged, drug out there, stripped naked. It says, when they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The leader scoffed. (laughs) He saved others. Let him save himself if he's really God's Messiah, the chosen one. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, So, you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, Don't you fear God? Even when you've been sentenced to die, we deserve to die for our crimes. But this man hasn't done anything wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me? When you come into your kingdom, and Jesus replied, I assure you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here's your son. And he said to this disciple, Here's your mother. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. And then at 3 o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, My God! My God! Why have you abandoned me? And then Jesus uttered another loud cry, It is finished! And suddenly the temple, the curtain in the temple was torn down the middle, and then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. Seven last words from Jesus on the cross. And my hope and prayer today as we, as we look at these words, as we get below the surface on these, you'll find out that in the way of Jesus, things aren't always as they seem. Things aren't always as they appear. And nobody would have seen it that day, though that six hours, one Friday, 2,000 plus years ago, nobody would have seen it at the time. We look back on it now and go, oh man, it's foreshadowed. It was there even in the words he said on the cross that there was something more going on than just a martyrdom, than just a crucifixion of a a a person who claimed to be the king. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. (laughs) It strikes me that a lot of the things I've done in my life that are wrong 
are not because I'm evil, I'm just dumb. Some of you go, that's a t-shirt. It's, I don't, didn't know what I was doing. You ever thought, what was I thinking? You know what it is? You weren't thinking, you're dumb. Sorry, you came to church today, you could be told you're a dumb idiot. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Crosspoint, visitors. We're glad you're here. But Jesus here says they don't know what they're doing. And as I look at that, and I scratch at that a little bit and try to cultivate that up and look at that, I go, wait a minute, they know exactly what they were doing. They don't, they're, they're crucifying him. And they know that he's done nothing to justify this. Of course they know what they're doing. What Jesus is saying here is they don't get the implications and the ramifications for themselves. They don't get who I am. If they really got it, they probably, and there's certainly there's evil people out there. They're just pure evil, but he says most of them, we just don't know what we're doing. We don't get it. Jesus extends grace. This is fascinating because we sing songs about grace, what have you done, murder for me on that cross. A great song goes way back. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And when we sing it, doesn't your heart go, hmm. Because we think about grace and it gives me, oh, it gives me goosebumps. Grace does not, is not intended to give you goosebumps. Grace has made, made, made you go, what are you talking about? Grace is scandalous and ridiculous. That grace would be extended on this cross. Jesus on the cross with nails in his hands and wrists. People who have spit in his face, who've mocked him, who've crucified him, who've beat him within an inch of his life and say, Father, forgive them. Grace is only grace when it's extended to jerks and enemies. Grace is not really grace when it's just extended to your husband or your spouse because, you know, they didn't do, take out the trash or they didn't do this or whatever. Grace is only grace when it's completely undeserved. In fact, See, this is what's so fantastic about God is he doesn't just give us mercy and let us off the hook and kind of go, okay, so I won't punish you. He extends goodness to us. Grace means God's riches at Christ's expense. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but this is exactly what's happening here. And it comes to people, not to his disciples, God be gracious to them, not to his mother there, to the people who put him on the cross, the Jewish authorities who are there mocking him for the claims that he made, the Roman soldiers who beat him up, who spit in his face, who put nails in his hands and in his feet. Forgive them. Matthew chapter 5. If you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to find those verses. Matthew 5, verse 43. See, Jesus is going to teach us some things here, but then the cross is the ultimate expression of what he's going to teach us. He doesn't just give us orders. He models it for us in ways that we can't even grasp or comprehend. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And that way you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. Um, I know I'm not supposed to do this today, and I'm not supposed to be political about anything, but you know what that means for those of you that are conservatives? That means you love and extend kindness to Gavin Newsom. Oops. Yeah. He's your, I get it. He's your enemy. And he, again, I would, they didn't vote for him, and I, I'm not here campaigning against or for him. But Jesus, the way of Jesus is like even your enemies, even people that you hate and people that have done terrible, evil, despicable things to you. It's a little tense in here. Breathe. <laughs> For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. And watch this. If you love only those who love you, 
What reward's there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And this doesn't mean moral perfection, you never sin again. What he's saying is the way that you treat people in relationships is you do this completely differently. And Jesus says, what our orientation needs to be is, God forgive them, they don't get it. To people even that have done evil, despicable things to you, and you know who they are. Forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Forgiveness, it's not real forgiveness until it feels unforgivable. Forgiving somebody and letting something go, like, okay, they did me wrong, that's not called forgiveness, it's just called being human. Forgiveness means forgiving the unforgivable when it feels completely unforgivable. And, and see, this is why, it's, such, this is why it's, it's so important what Jesus models for us here is that reconciliation and, restora- reconciliation and restoration is only going to be possible when real forgiveness is there. When you said they didn't get it, they didn't understand it. And I get it. I can hear the objections in the back of your head. But what does it mean to let people walk all over us? And here's what we tend to do sometimes with the, with the words of Jesus is we try to go, well, he doesn't mean this, he doesn't mean that. And I go, no, no, we shouldn't do that. We should let Jesus just say what he says and go, look, there's certainly some other places where it says there's boundaries. Look, forgiveness doesn't mean that restoration is always possible. But if it's going to be possible at all, we have to be able to let some things go. And here's what's super important for us. Those of you who have been grievously sinned against, and I look around this room today, and I know your story, and I know yours, and yours, and yours. I don't even know all of your stories. I know enough of them to know This is a big deal for you. You've been grievously sinned against. And whether or not your forgiveness impacts the other person at all, it's important for your own soul. Because when a lack of forgiveness gets in there and a sense of entitlement, and I'm not letting that go, I'm holding on to that in bitterness. I heard a guy say it years ago, a lack of forgiveness and bitterness is like drinking poison, hoping it kills the other person. It just messes you up. It kills your soul. It's the good news of the way of Jesus. Is it's just not a moral command. It's the right thing to do. It's the best way to live. The second thing Jesus says on the cross is, I'm thirsty. We get a sense of how real this is, that Jesus is not, a, he's not an Avenger superhero with superhuman powers to, to blunt the power of the crucifixion and dehydration. He's completely dehydrated right now. And he says, I'm thirsty. He's feeling that real, just like you and I would feel that if we were there in that place. And they take, it says they got a container of sour wine that's there in a jar. Uh, there's two different versions of what this might be. Uh, one of this, of what people think is in that jar, one of them is this, it's a drink called pasca. You can look at this in archaeology and history. Pasca is the thing that poor people drank. It was a mixture of sour wine, vinegar, and water. Just, I guess, to sanitize it, to, de- you know, to make sure there's no germs or anything in there. There's also, the other theory is that the sour wine there, it's just in a jar there. It's used as something to, to sanitize the stuff around the cross with, just to clean stuff up. One thing you need to know here, Rome is not interested in making the crucifixion experience a little less terrible for the person being crucified. This is not Roman soldiers going, oh, I feel bad for him. 
He's thirsty. Let's give him something to drink. That's not what's going on here. This is mockery. This is taking sour wine here, whether it's just nasty sour wine that's there people drink once in a while or, or sanitizing fluid to clean up stuff around the cross. They take that sponge, they dip it in there, put it on a stick and go, suck on this, drink this. Jess Bullett, our executive pastor this week, we were talking about this. She goes, this analogy, it's a perfect analogy of what we do in our culture is that we are thirsty. We are thirsty. We're, at this, we're dehydrated spiritually, mentally, emotionally. And what the culture does is it sticks the sponge in drugs and alcohol and pornography, the really nasty stuff, but it also is <laughs> Amazon Prime, oops, Walmart, Netflix, Hulu, binge, and just says... And if you keep doing that, you can get enough relief from your thirst. And Jesus says, here's the crazy irony. He says, I'm thirsty. And he's there as the source of living water to say, if you're tired of sucking on that stuff, come to me. I have the water for your soul. And this cross, what he's doing here in the cross is going to be this pure, amazing, eternal life-giving water. I'm thirsty. He says to the person, the criminal crucified next to him. When the, when the guy says, hey, Jesus, I've heard about your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Maybe he thinks Jesus can do a miracle on the cross here and get him. Just whatever your kingdom is, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. What I love about this is not someday, this day. That when you die, the, the scriptures tell us to be absent from the body if you're a Christian, is to be present with the Lord. The last breath in this life and the next breath in the next one is in the presence of Jesus. And not some, here, here's the thing, a lot, of cult, a lot of cultural religions and even sometimes Christianity has got sucked into this idea of that coming to faith in Jesus means you're going to be just this disembodied, floating around on a cloud, playing a harp in a diaper, you know, like a toga, sorry. Um, it just seems like it just feels like so impersonal. He said, no, no, it's going to be joy and amazing. And, and what's beautiful about this, this is again where things are not always as they seem. Put yourself in the scene that day that you're up here. You have a drone flying over. You're looking at the faces of the criminals, of Jesus, of the, the religious leaders around the cross. Jesus, we're finding Jesus' mother is there. Just the crowds, the onlookers, people going by on their trade routes, going past this uh, big roadway. Who would you guess that day is closest to being right with God. Not the criminal on the cross. Because he's done. The scriptures tell us uh, in, in Leviticus that cursed is anyone who's ever hung on a tree. Which, which means is, like, man, when you, get, you, when you do stuff that's bad enough to be hung on a cross and crucified, pff, you're beyond hope. You're, you're beyond even the reach of God. And Jesus says, not so fast. Here's the scandalous news of the gospel. Don't miss this. You could live your whole life being a wreck and a disaster of a human being, making a mess out of your life in every possible way. And if at the last moment there is a heartfelt, Jesus, remember me, Jesus says, that's all I need. Write this down today if you want. I've said it to you over and over again. If they're not dead, they're not done. Here's the good news for some of us today. I'm not going to point him out, but he's my neighbor, Steve, um, who, by his own admission, has lived a life, had lived a life of just a mess and a disaster for years, for decades. 
and in his later years has come to a place of faith in Jesus. Some of you remember years ago, several years ago, back at the Adam Street campus that would have fit all like right in here in this side of the room. It was a really small building. Um, Hope, by her own admission, had been a disaster of a human being. She had wrecked and ruined so many relationships and all that. And she was, I mean, she was blind. She couldn't even walk anymore. She was just a mess, even physically. But she came to a place at the last, the last lap around coming into home to death. She became a Christian, and she couldn't see. She couldn't walk. We lifted her into the baptismal pool, and she got baptized. See, if they're not dead, they're not done, which is why this is good news for you and I today. This rings particularly true for me in my heart and soul. I have people in my family who have just decided at this point they want nothing to do with Jesus or God or church or any of it. Some of you have people in your family just like that. Your children, moms and dads, we live in a culture where our kids are being given multiple choice on all kinds of stuff that is bewildering and flabbergasting. We go, what kind of hell have we unleashed on the children? And where our, our kids are going to get involved in some crazy, messy, jacked up stuff. They're just going to. And you look at that and go, how is that even going to be possible to come back? Look, here's the guy, this guy, we don't even know his name, that crucified next to Jesus there. His, where's his family's gone. The family's gone. He's out. He's done. We, we've completely just given up on him. Understand, if they're not dead, they're not done. And I'm telling you, that gives me, that gives me such, it's a crazy weird mix of, of sadness and joy altogether to know that there's hope even for the most ravaged, wrecked, messed up people. If they live decades of their life separate from God, this is the scandal of grace. What that means is those people, that criminal on the cross who lived about two hours <laughs> giving his life to Jesus gets the same reward in heaven that you and I get who lived your whole life there. That's the scandal of grace. It's why grace is always so amazing. It's like, wait a minute, it doesn't make sense. I, mean, I don't like that very much. Yeah, because you don't get grace yet. Grace means it's extended even the most undeserving. He looks at his mom who's there and says, woman, here's your son. Looks to John, the disciples are, John, here's your mom. You know the question that comes out of this for me? If you climb inside this story and get after it, Mary's there with one of Jesus' disciples. Where's the rest of the family? We know Jesus has brothers and sisters. Where are they? They couldn't even be there for mom today? Mom seeing her oldest child crucified? They couldn't? Just be there for her because they didn't like Jesus. They thought he was lunatic and crazy, didn't believe him. Now, the crazy thing is, I think all of them, we don't know for sure all of them, but for sure one of them, James, his little brother, became a Christian who wrote the book of James in the New Testament. So that's a crazy thing that happens there after the cross. But Mary's there by herself with a couple other women and this disciple of Jesus. Here's the thing that I get out of this for me today. Jesus said it this way. He says, sometimes when it comes to, to following me, to being my disciple, sometimes that's going to mean even your own family is going to hate you. Your blood family is going to want nothing to do with you. He said, I've not come to bring peace on earth. I've come to bring a sword. That whole notion that Jesus wants the whole world to sing in perfect harmony, uh-uh. He's here to draw some lines in the sand, which means at times 
Loyalty to Jesus means people in your own blood family. Here's what you might want to put down today for some of you that you felt, you felt this. Sometimes your spiritual family is going to be more important than your physical blood family. Just going to be. Some of you have experienced that. Now, if your blood family are Christians and following Jesus, that's beautiful and amazing. So don't do this whole thing, those of you students out here going, yeah, my blood family is more important, mom and dad. Go, get in my face. It's not what we're saying here today. Jesus screams out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? Have you ever asked God in this last year? I don't know if <laughs> several of you in this last year have raised your hand to God and go, why? What? what? Are you paying attention down here? Why? If you've ever felt why about anything in your life and if you've ever felt completely abandoned, that's a terrifying place to be when it feels like my family, my friends, just can be completely isolated and alone. Jesus understands what that feels like for you and for me. But what you need to understand here, what's going on more here is not why have you abandoned me. It's why have you, God, abandoned me. Because I'm here doing your will. I'm here accomplishing the mission you told me. Because here's what's happening at this moment in time. We don't know how long it lasts here. But for a stretch of time here, Jesus the infinite creator, perfect human being, and perfect God in the flesh, God is pouring out the absolute wrath and judgment and horror of what sin deserves, not on anybody who deserves it, not on you and me, but on his own son. Letting him experiencing undiluted, uncensored, unfiltered, just wrath and judgment. And Again, that's offensive. I go, how in the world could a good father do that to his son? Which is what's crazy and, and, and amazing. Francis Chan wrote the book called Crazy Love. We sing a song here called Reckless Love. And all the little neat-nick theologian people go, it's not reckless love. God, God. Like, Shut up, it was reckless love. For you to allow your child to be killed, to be tortured, to have wrath and judgment poured out on him or her for something somebody else did? What would you call that? That's unfathomable what he does there. That wrath and judgment is poured out on his son. We're going to sing a song today. Uh, and, and the band's going to come up in just a, a couple of minutes here. And uh, it says that, the, the, oh, the rugged cross, my salvation. It says, the sin of man... And the wrath of God was on our Jesus laid. That's why he's screaming out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He's experiencing the wrath and the judgment and hell. Isaiah 53, 6 says it like this. It says, the Lord God was pleased to lay on him the iniquity of us all. And Jesus stands there as your substitute in your place. To say that what you deserve was the wrath and the judgment of God. And whether or not you've been a good moral person, grew up in church and got Sunday school badges and did all the Awana things and memorized all the verses, or you made a mess out of your life, you're all separated from God. And the only chance you have is that somebody else, the Lamb of God, dies in your place and the wrath and judgment from the hand of God that you righteously, justly deserve was turned aside from you and placed on Jesus. And then Jesus screams out, it is finished. What they would have heard that day, it's done. 
it's done. And you would have thought, it's done, it's over. The actual words that get used there, some of you actually, I know some of you guys have this tattooed different places, is the word tetelestai. Which means, in that culture, it was used in the business world a lot. Tetelestai simply meant paid in full. You did a transaction deal, a real estate transaction deal or buying groceries, whatever. When you got your receipt back, they brought the thing out that you're going to get, and then they would stamp the receipt. It's a done deal. It's over. It's paid in full. Here's the implications of that for you and I. Every other religion on the face of this planet right now says, oh, no, no, you have something you're supposed to do. I'm not going to take you through all the religions, but the one that's dominant in our culture is just the simple idea of karma, that you have to do enough good stuff to make, to outlet your good stuff, outweigh your bad stuff, and you put God on the hook for you, and he kind of owes you some good things and blessings of kind of the universe will send blessings your way. Christianity says there is nothing you can do. It's not by, Paul tells uh, Timothy, it's not by works of righteousness as you've done. It's according to his mercy and grace that he saved us. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own. You did not do anything to get this. So if you're not a Christian today, you're wondering, well, what do I have to do to become a Christian? You know what you have to do to become a Christian? Nothing. Bob, a daughter last week, talked to us about this idea. Well, oftentimes by our actions and our attitudes, we're shaking our fist at God like this. You know what you do to come to become a Christian? Jesus, I have nothing for you. And the whole ridiculous notion that you, by your few religious good deeds, could somehow square the deal with the holy God of the universe, God should kill you for that right now. That's, that's just blasphemous, terrible. Like, if you understand the holiness and the greatness of God, and you think that somehow you're, you, gave, you came to church a few times and joined a small group and gave money, like, come on. You don't get in because of that stuff. You come with empty hands and go, God, I got nothing to bring you. That's why it's always, often easier for people that are separated from God, who lived a life of nothing, to come to Jesus and get grace. It's harder for those of you that have been Christianized, raised in good homes, and you've been raised to do, be good boys and girls. Because you think, well, aren't I supposed to do something? Huh? You do nothing. Here's the other thing that happens, though. People become Christians, and they hear, here's how we tend to think about it here in the West sometimes. I've had conversations with you about this. We sometimes look at the grace of God and what Jesus did on the cross, not as the full payment, but as a down payment. It's like, okay, Jesus paid for my sin and did all that. And, he, and here's, how we, here's the things that pastors and, and religious people have said from time to time that have, give, that, that have forced us at times to draw false conclusions. Is Jesus died for you, can't you live for him? All that is is that Jesus isn't enough. You've got to do something too. And now that he kind of got you into the house, now you've got to make the payments. That is not the gospel. That is not the good. Jesus is paid in full. And the other crazy thing that we do, um, I've talked to my, my buddy Paul, who teaches the Romans Bible study here. He's had conversations about men. You should come out to that on Monday nights. It's on the website for the Times and all that stuff. Get on out to that. Conversations with men that are there looking at the gospel of, that, that Paul talks about in the book of Romans. And I've had conversations in my office over and over again with people who go, you just don't understand, man. I've, I've done some stuff in my life. I just can't forgive myself. I can't 
let that go, and I'm just, you know, I'm holding on to that. Here's what I want you to know today. Look right at me right now. Don't take notes on this. Look right in my eyes. When you do that, when you come to God and go, oh, man, this week I was a jerk to that. I can't forgive myself or that thing I did in my past. When I was in high school or when I was in middle school, when I betrayed somebody, when I committed adultery, when I did some terrible, awful, evil stuff. And I know Jesus forgives me. I know I'm here, but I just, I, I just can't let that go. Jesus looks at you and goes, what are you doing here again? Did I stutter? It is done. It's finished. You don't carry that guilt anymore. And that whole stupid, sorry, I'm getting um, a little riled up. The silly notion that I'm just a sinner. And you keep making that thing, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Certainly you are a sinner saved by grace, man. You have been forgiven. You have been set free. God is transforming and changing you from the inside out. Don't play that silly notion, well, I'm just, God, this is just who I am. No, no. It's finished. It's done. And then, and then Jesus says, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And this is like an athlete who's run the triathlon. Some of you do that crazy, the the crazy mud run thing on Camp Pendleton where you go through mud and they're shooting missiles over your head and (laughs) crazy kind of stuff. It's an exhausting thing that people do. And you get to the end. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's crossing the finish line. Father, and he's just exhausted. He's worn out because he knows he's accomplished the mission for which he has been sent. I entrust my spirit into your hands. And he takes, it's like what they do in, I, I know I, get, I quote it too much, but, uh, the, but in Braveheart, when they take that sword at the end of one of the battles, he just takes it and throws it across the field and lands in the ground. I entrust my spirit into your hands. It's finished. It's done. And there's a lot we could look at in that. I think today, what I want you to see, what God moved my heart Wednesday afternoon this week that I'd never seen before is that the last words of Jesus on the cross should be the first words that you say to Jesus after you get this. Father, not because of myself, not because of me and how awesome I am, I entrust my life into your hands. That's what it means to become a Christian. If you're not a Christian today, maybe you've been Christianized, you know a bit of the story, but it's time to come full bore with that. I'm stepping over the line. My whole life is yours, Jesus. And again, for those of you that are Christians, this is the daily commitment of our lives. Is Jesus. Every day I commit my life into your hands. It's, not a, it's a discovering and following Jesus. You do this. Paul says this in Romans chapter 12. After he has taken the first 11 chapters, talk about the amazing grace of God and who God is and all the amazing things Jesus did for us on the cross. He says, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of everything God's done for you, I appeal to you, give your bodies. Give your lives as a living sacrifice. Just give yourself to God. That's a consistent, ongoing process of what it means to discover and follow Jesus. As, we're not done yet, so stay with me here, but as Rod and Stephen come back up again. What's fantastic about this? Anybody here today have a cross necklace on or cross earrings? Anybody? Yeah. Cross tattoos, anybody? A few people have cross tattoos. Yeah. The cross has become this beautiful thing. It was not a beautiful thing back then. It was scandalous, evil. The early church did not use the cross as a symbol of anything until everybody who had ever seen a crucifixion died. You would not, they, they used... They used a peacock, oddly enough, because it represented eternity. There was a shepherd's staff. They, they used a the little ichthus, the fish. 
represented Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, but they, they did not use a cross. Here's what's amazing about God is God says things are not always as they seem. I will take the most vile, disgusting, evil stuff and leverage it into something that becomes a beautiful symbol that now it's on cathedrals, sculptures made out of it. We wear it in beautiful jewelry. And that's not just slam anybody and say, well, we shouldn't be doing that. Go, this is exactly what God does. He takes the most evil, vile, disgusting things. He takes evil, vile, disgusting people. Rebellious people. And sometimes the most offensive thing to God, I think, is religious people (laughs) who think we can do it all ourselves. (laughs) Our response to that today, just to come remember Jesus, what he did on the cross. We'd have communion in the four corners there. And the lights go down for a bit in a second. And there's communion there. It's, it's a piece of bread representing the body of Jesus. Some juice representing his blood. Jesus tells us, just do this on, all the time to remember me. Remember me. Remember me. Don't remember yourself. Because if you remember yourself, you try to think of how awesome, amazing you are and what a good week you had. It doesn't matter if you had the most horrible, awful, evil morning getting to church today. Don't remember that. Remember Jesus. And then what's fascinating too, I think in a couple of years we're going to do a series through Revelation. Don't hold me to that, but I think Revelation is coming. We'll see. I've been reading through Revelation. You know what's fascinating to me that I look in there all the time? What's happening? What the people of God are doing in response to who God is? Singing. And they're not singing because Jesus is going, you better sing to me. They're singing because they can't help themselves. There's a couple, so we're going to sing these great songs today, but a couple of songs that are old school songs that go back hundreds of years. The song, How Great Thou Art. One of the verses says, And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in that on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul. The reason we don't sing like we ought to is because we don't get it in our soul yet. And then one of my favorite songs of all time. We did it, I think, here last weekend. It says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. It is well, it is well with my soul. Jesus, today we sing, we celebrate, we partake of communion. God, surprise us, encourage us, rebuke us, whatever you need to do as we take some moment here to let this just sink in and sing. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. For more resources, check out go to crosspoint.com.